Amen. Well, good morning once again, Crossroads. It's uh, my great privilege to study God's Word with you this morning. Pastor Gary was able to take a little time off, but he will return next week. Um, but we're, as you've just seen, we're continuing our series through the, the book of Acts. And we are going to be in chapter 15 this morning, and we are going to be uh, taking a look at really the most crucial question that somebody could ever ask. What is that? It's the question, what must I do to be saved? How can we get to heaven? How do we make it? And, uh, you know, up up until now in the book of Acts, we have seen a, a reoccurring theme emerge. It's this, it says, or it's the fact that wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ advances, it will be met with opposition. Wherever the gospel goes, it will surely be met with opposition. And we saw that to be true last week as as Pastor Gary took us on a road trip through chapters 13 and 14, highlighting uh, the first missionary journey of Paul and, and Barnabas. And, you know, along the way, Paul and Barnabas, they saw multitudes of Gentiles responding to the truth of the gospel. Gentiles, of course, being non-Jews. And along with the the awesome response to the truth of the gospel, we saw opposition arise to the point where in Lystra, I believe, Paul himself was stoned, drug out of the city, and left for dead until God Revive, you know, whether he died or not is kind of a, a debate among, among Bible teachers. Um, but regardless, God raised him up and he went back into the city and completed his sermon, which, which he had been preaching. Well, in chapter 15, the opposition continues, but in a much more subtle and you could say deceptive form. And it's in the form of legalism the form of legalism, and we'll see that this internal opposition, see up until this point, the opposition has been all, uh, you know, external. But now we're seeing a subtle attack against the the gospel coming from inside. Um, And I believe in Paul's mind, this was a much greater threat than than any outside attack, than than any act of violence against himself or or the church as a whole. Legalism threatened to divide the early church and and really strangle the life of the early believers. And and this threat of legalism didn't end in the book of Acts. It's very much alive even today and threatens to, to, to strangle the life of believers today. So what is it? What is legalism? Here's, here's just one definition, kind of my own definition for, for this morning. It says, legalism is the adherence to rules and the performance of good deeds in order to be accepted by God. It's the belief that a person can only be made right in God's sight by following a specific list of do's and don'ts. The gospel, on the other hand, is the message that acceptance in God's sight is based solely upon the grace of God. Amen? No amount of good deeds on 
on our behalf or the following of rules and regulations can ever make us or anybody acceptable to God. It just never happened. I love this quote. It says, grace isn't being favored and accepted by God because we're good. It's being accepted by God because he is good. Here's here's a few scriptures from Ephesians. This kind of lays the foundation for the message. Ephesians chapter 2, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Many years ago, there was a a religious gathering uh, that took place in England, men of, of differing traditions, Differing beliefs, different religions had gathered together for this interfaith conference, something that is becoming more and more popular in our day. But at this, at this conference, uh, C.S. Lewis was in attendance, the great Christian thinker, Christian apologist from years, years, years back. And eventually at this conference, the question came down to what makes Christianity unique from other religions? And many shared their, their opinions, their thoughts, and somebody suggested the fact that, well, God, in, Christi- in Christian theology, God became a man. Others said, well, that's not unique to, to Christianity. Other religions teach that. Um, even as we saw, in, if, if you heard the message last week, there, you know, during the missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas, through God's power, heal this man, and all of a sudden the people want to worship them, thinking the gods had come down in human form. All right, so they go on during this conference. Somebody else suggested, well, the belief that, that the dead will rise again, that's, maybe that's what makes Christianity unique. But likewise, some objected and said, that's not unique. Other religions teach the same thing. And finally, they, you know, they, they go to Lewis and they said, what do you believe makes, makes Christianity unique from all other religions? And, and they quieted down and listened, and Lewis said very simple. He said, the, the, what makes Christianity unique is found in one word. It's grace. It's grace. See, every other system of belief, every other religion, is really the, the story of man's attempt to, to reach with all their strength to get to God or, or their idea of, of, of what, whatever God is. Christianity, on the other hand, is the truth that instead of man reaching towards heaven, God reached from heaven down to man to redeem man and bring him back into a perfect relationship with himself. That's the gospel. See, Satan wants to, of course, distort that pure message and somehow get us to believe that we have to somehow meet God halfway. Yes, God reaches down, but we got to reach up in our own strength and our our own power to do our part. God did his part. We have to do ours. Salvation is kind of a a 50-50 deal. But the fact of the matter and the truth of the gospel is that God has done 100% of the work, not 50%, not 75, or even 99%, but 100%. Our part is simply to acknowledge it, 
believe it, and receive it. That's our part. So as we move into this passage this morning, uh, we're, we're going to see these, these two, uh, well, not, not two truths, the truth of the gospel and the lie of legalism come together in a clash that, that had serious consequences for then and now. Um, but before we jump into that passage, will, will you please pray with me one more time? God, we're, we're grateful to be here. God, we're thankful that we have your word and that we can study this message that you have given to us, which reveals your heart and your plan and the truth of the gospel and what you have done in order to make a way for us to have communion and fellowship with you. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning. Give us as as your church ears to hear what it is that you are wanting to say to us. God, give give us understanding to comprehend the scriptures. We commit this time to you now. Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen. There's a few fill-ins on your, on your notes there, and the first point, we kind of just, just covered it, but we're going to talk more about it. It's, it's simply this, salvation is through grace alone. Uh, again, just re- referring to last week and Pastor Gary's message, we, we saw Paul and Barnabas preaching the gospel, and most likely they were gone for two to three years traveling all throughout the region, sharing the gospel, you know, all kinds of things, you know, going on, seeing that opposition rise and them overcoming it. And now as we, as we move into chapter 15, they have now returned home in a sense to their, their home church, which had become uh, that, that, that church there in Antioch. Now after those two or three years, they have returned back to that church And I just wanted to read the last two verses of chapter 14, and then we'll move right into chapter 15. So now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Now chapter 15, flowing right into it, says, And certain men came down from Judea, And taught the brethren, saying, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, chapter 15 begins with this reference to these certain men from Judea. And we quickly learn that these were religious Jews who had come to believe that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the Son of God, but they had misunderstood the full significance of what Jesus had accomplished at Calvary. They believed that Jesus could indeed save them, but only after they had done everything in their own power to be saved, primarily by keeping the commands of the Old Testament. And so these men were continuing in strict adherence to that law, and they expected others to do the same, just as they were doing. 
And when the news reached these men down there, probably in Jerusalem, of the work that Paul and Barnabas were doing and the fact that, you know, countless multitudes of Gentiles were responding to the truth of the gospel and being welcomed into the church, these, these men all of a sudden considered it their God-ordained duty to travel to Antioch and really throughout the entire region that Paul and Barnabas had traveled to in order to set these new Gentile converts straight. They wanted them to know that, you know, in order to be saved, they must first enter in through the door of Judaism. And the way, the first step you could say that they believed they would do this is by accepting the right of circumcision and then adhering to the law just as they did. You see, circumcision in the Old Testament was ordained by God as the sign of the covenant between God and the nation of Israel. It was a a picture of the, the cutting away of the physical flesh, which represented being separated from the rest of the nations of the world. Okay, it was this external but yet private reminder that God had chosen them. They were to be distinct from all others. And to these legalists, Christianity, which was relatively young, was simply an advanced form, really a a sect of Judaism. And again, in their mind, in order to be a Christian, you had to come through Judaism in order to be a part of it. The, the thought that these pagan Gentiles could, could bypass the Old Testament law and, and simply believe in Christ and be saved was, was absurd to them. See, they had spent all their lives laboring under the heavy weight of the law, striving to be accepted by God, and, and they wanted these Gentiles to bear some of that burden as well. To, to feel some of that weight and to understand that, hey, salvation wasn't nearly as easy as Paul and Barnabas were making it seem. Well, what they didn't understand and what so many don't fully understand today is that if you add anything to grace, it ceases to be grace. If you add anything to it, it then ceases to be. You see, in order to receive, or if there's, if there's works, if, you know, if the prerequisite to receive God's grace is any work on our part, it nullifies it as a gift. The gift of grace is no longer a gift if we have to somehow earn it. Well, Paul and Barnabas, upon hearing this, this message from these, these Judaizers, as they became known, um, you know, they're, they're not a- about to allow this, this message to be, to be propagated unchallenged. And so as, as, as Luke, the writer of, of Acts, says in, in verse 2, he said, no small, that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. I, I kind of like that language. Luke, Luke is in essence of saying a massive debate erupted. <laughs> no small <laughs> dispute A massive argument, a heated argument began. 
Paul and Barnabas, they recognized the threat posed by the message, and they drew a line in the sand and declared, as long as we are breathing, we will not allow this false teaching to spread. So after some time, it became clear, you know, neither side was backing down, and it was decided that the only way they were going to resolve this question, resolve this matter, was to send Paul, send Barnabas uh, to Jerusalem, to the, the apostles, to the leaders of the church, and who would ultimately have the final say in this matter. So going on in verse 3, we see, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So both parties arrive there in Jerusalem and we see this theological clash continuing as, as Paul and Barnabas testify to the fact that the grace of God is, is being poured out upon these Gentiles, that they're, they're coming to faith, their lives are being changed. But then also seeing these, these Pharisees, which are probably some of these same men who had traveled to Antioch, rising up and, and demanding once again that if they are to be saved, they must adhere to circumcision, to the law. Brings us to that, the second uh, point this morning is the fact that we must contend for the gospel of grace. I believe here in America, we are living in a time where the opposition to the gospel has never been greater. And, you know, I believe God, just like God stirred up Paul I believe God is, is stirring up his church to take a stand, to, to draw a line in the sand and say, we will not allow anything contrary to the pure gospel to go forth. I, I love these verses in, in the, the book of Jude. Jude was one of Jesus's earthly brothers who, who came to believe that his brother was indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. And he writes in his letter in verses 3 and 4, he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I, he's saying, you know what, I, I really just wanted to rejoice in the fact of, 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 of how God has saved us and just revel in the grace of God. But then he goes on, he said, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, this, this internal assault, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our, uh, and our Lord Jesus Christ. So contend earnestly. You hear the, the passion in, in Jude, and the, the Greek terms that he used in this passage were most often used in a, in a context of a, of a sporting competition. And the imagery is, is of, a, of a wrestler, you know, trying to, to, to overcome his opponent, or, or in our 
you know, our football craze society, it's the picture of a running back striving, pushing against those defenders, straining, trying to reach that, that first down marker, contending earnestly. See, I believe that there are countless people coming to the knowledge of God's grace in our world today. Countless people respond, but so often, as soon as somebody gets that ball in their hands, if you will, they get tripped up. They get, they get pushed out of bounds by various tricks of our opponent. One of those tricks he uses is legalism. You see, while, while this attack of, of legalism on the early church will be defeated, as we will see, its, its subtle power has continued to infiltrate the church for the last 2,000 years. Many would-be followers of Jesus have been sidelined due to some legalistic doctrine, legalistic teaching, which, which sneaks in and cheapens and lessens the grace of God and the cross of Christ. There's a passage in Galatians I wanted to read through, chapter 5, and in your notes, if you have them, if you look to the very end, you'll see a, a very lengthy passage, and we're not going to read through it all this morning, just a couple of passages from Galatians, but I want to encourage you in your devotion time this week in the Word of God, study or at least read through the book of Galatians, or at the very minimum, read through that summary in your notes. It's 16 verses, I believe, that I just kind of picked and chose, which summarized the message of Galatians. Take you less than five minutes to read through it. If you want to read the entire book of Galatians, it's, it's six chapters. You know, maybe take you 30 minutes or, you know, less than an hour for sure. And it is just a, a beautiful um, letter written by Paul, which takes chapter 15 of Acts to a whole nother level. See, these Judaizers don't quit. They continue on. And their message spreads. And, and it's like they, they seek to go where, wherever, wherever the gospel was spreading. They would enter. And the region of Galatia was, was not spared by this doctrine. And in Galatians chapter 5 here, we read Paul imploring these, these believers. He's saying, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty which Christ has made us free. Stand fast in the freedom which Christ has given you, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Saying if you're depending on circumcision and the keeping of the law, Christ will have no effect upon you. I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And Paul goes on and on throughout that letter, imploring these Galatians who had fallen prey to these legalists and had forfeited the liberty which can only come through Jesus Christ. They had entered into relationship 
by grace and we're now seeking to stay in that relationship by keeping the law. It's a big mistake they were making and a mistake that many believers make today. All of us are susceptible to it. We may not even realize it, but we fall into this trap of thinking that somehow we can only approach God on a Sunday morning if we've done really good that week. See, our relationship this morning is just as dependent upon the grace of God as it was on the day that we were saved, the day that we were redeemed. We don't somehow come into this relationship with Christ by realizing the power of his grace and then, and then stay accepted because of all the good things we do. See, that can rob us of joy. That can rob us of the, of the power of the gospel. There's, there's countless examples of, of how legalism tries to, to, to infiltrate the church today. There, there's many denominations and religious systems. You know, many churches will teach that, yes, Jesus saves, but you have to give a certain portion of your income to stay saved. You know, and obviously we teach giving and tithing, but in no way is that, you know, required for you to remain a part of the, the family of God. Others say, you know, Jesus saves, but you got to go sell or give away magazines on a street corner. You got to knock on doors. If you're going to make it, you got to be busy. You got to be working hard. Others say you have to be baptized in order to be saved. And again, we, we preach baptism, but it's a picture of Jesus saving us, not a requirement in order for Jesus to save us. There's others who say what we're doing this morning is, is against God's commands. What is that? We're worshiping on Sunday. And they'll say, in order to be saved, you got to keep the Sabbath. Got to worship on Saturday, only on Saturday. Again, the list could go on and on and on. And while we may not see these as much of a threat to our own lives, know that countless Believers, those who, see, who respond to the gospel, are being led astray by, by these legalistic doctrines. You know, we're very active in missions in, in our denomination. And, and uh, there's reports of missionaries who go into an unreached people group, share the gospel, and this tribe, maybe this unreached tribe will respond to the gospel. And, and these missionaries will move on to another location. And you know who's on their heels coming in after the missionaries? Mormons. Jehovah's Witnesses, preaching a, a, a more complete gospel, another gospel, which Paul says is not another gospel. It's deception. He says, even if an angel from heaven appears and preaches any other gospel than what we have proclaimed, let him be accursed. Legalism, the threat of legalism is, is real, even in our day. So we've got to be ready to contend for the faith with our loved ones. We've got to be ready to give an answer for the hope which, which Jesus has put inside of us. And when we see a brother going astray into some strange doctrine, we've got to approach him and say, hey, let's look at the word of God together. Let's contend for the faith together. Let's not allow our, our family members to be led astray by these, these false teachings. Going on in our, our passage in, in chapter 15, I better keep moving. We're going to run out of time. <clears throat> Picking it up in verse 6, it says, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. 
And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples? That's a a great picture of legalism, a yoke being put on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe, this is a powerful statement by Peter, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. I love it. He doesn't say they will be saved just like we're saved. He says we can experience God's grace just like they're experiencing God's grace apart from the law. So Peter, you know, he stands up in the, in the midst of this gathering. Everybody gives him their attention. And having the floor, Peter refers back to this encounter that he had back in chapter 10 of Acts, if you were here. Now, Jamie shared the, the word that morning, did a great job. And you'll remember that, that Peter in that passage, he's staying in the home of, uh, in the city of Joppa, in the home of Simon the Tanner. And while there, God speaks to him through this this vision and instructs him to go to the home of a Gentile, this Roman centurion named Cornelius, whom God had spoken to. And Cornelius gathered his family and friends and filled his house with those who, who wanted to hear Peter speak. And as Peter's declaring the truth of the gospel, the Holy Spirit Just picture it. Peter's preaching. And as he's speaking, all of a sudden, these Gentiles are filled with the Spirit of God, many of them speaking out in another language, just as the disciples had on the day of Pentecost. Happened right there in front of them. And Peter, uh, you know, remembering that day and recalling what happened, says in effect, you know, while it may be difficult for us to break down these barriers which have, have separated Jews and Gentiles. And there were many. You know, there were, there were, were Jews and rabbis who, who believed and taught that Gentiles had simply been created to fuel the fires of hell. I mean, there was great animosity between Jews and Gentiles. And here Peter is declaring God is obviously not bound by ethnic differences. He sees the heart of an individual. He poured out his spirit upon these Gentiles just as he poured it out upon us. And I just, I sense Peter's passion in these verses that we read. And I think this is a big moment for Peter. Because although he had this experience and although he, he witnessed what, you know, what he saw that day in Cornelius' house, he's had some struggles and, uh, you know, he, he no doubt believed Gentiles could be saved, but he was wrestling with how to interact with them. And he was still being influenced by these, these legalists. And once again, looking at the book of Galatians, chapter 2, Paul, he, he tells of a time when he actually confronted Peter. It's a powerful passage in chapter 2. It says, now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face. Paul and Peter... He says, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, 
fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? I love it. There's, there's time to, to confront each other. You know, sometimes we want to avoid confrontation at all costs. You know? But when it comes to the truth, you know, the truth of the gospel is more valuable, valuable than a perceived unity. You believe that? The truth of the gospel. And really, it's not a, it's not a disunity here. This is, this is a healthy family. A healthy family confronting one another, encouraging, exhorting one another to, to, to live with a higher standard. And, and thankfully, Peter responded to that correction by his brother in the Lord, and, and now here, I, be, you know, I believe Peter's fully convinced. He, he's resolute. Jews and Gentiles are on equal footing before God, and, and I, again, I love that. He says, but through the grace of God, we're going to be saved just like they are saved. No yoke of legalism, no yoke of law on their shoulders. Going on, verse 12, then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and, and Paul. So now, you know, Peter's turn is over. Barnabas and Paul now have the floor, and they're declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Now, James, this is another brother of Jesus. James, the apostle we saw earlier in the book, had been put to death by Herod. This James is actually, uh, like Jude, one of the brothers of Jesus, who, who didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah during his life, but after his crucifixion and resurrection, James, his brother, puts his faith in, in Jesus Christ and really became the leader, along with Peter and the others, of the Jerusalem church. So now this council, this, this, uh, what's referred to as the council at Jerusalem, um, they, they look to James now, who was the leader, and, and he says, um, men and brethren, there in verse 13, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all of these things. I love to always get a mental picture of the stories we, we read in the Bible. And, and here I picture, you know, this council going on, probably in a large home there in Jerusalem. And I kind of picture the Constitutional Convention for some reason, but just put disciples' faces on the faces of our founders. And here they are, and James is seated at the front of the room. And, and as I picture as Peter and Paul and Barnabas are sharing their thoughts and proclaiming their truths, I see James with, with a bunch of scrolls. And he's, he's you know, halfway listening to what the men are saying and halfway searching the scriptures. And as they're speaking, James settles 
on this passage which he quotes from the prophet Amos. And it's as if the words, I believe, just leapt off the page for James. And he settles on those words, even the Gentiles, even the Gentiles, even the Gentiles Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord. Now we read that and it doesn't affect us too much because we're gen- most of us are Gentiles and we're like, praise God. But for, for James in that moment, his world changed. He recognized not only are Gentiles being accepted, you know, because of what Jesus has done, but even God in the Old Testament foresaw and called the Gentiles by his name. And he goes on, known to God from eternity are all his works. This is no surprise to God. From before the creation of the world, he, he foreknew who would be his own. James says, therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. A fill in there for you. He says, those who receive grace must give grace. Those who receive grace must give grace. Now, these verses kind of take people by surprise. We're gaining some momentum, seeing the, the fact of the gospel, the truth that Gentiles can be saved, and all of a sudden, it seems to the casual reader that James and the apostles here you know, they've, they've kind of accepted it's through grace and grace alone, you know, available to Jews and Gentiles alike. But then it seems like they, they take a portion of the law and lay it on the backs of the Gentiles anyways. We're thinking, what's, what's going on here? Well, the purpose of these specific instructions isn't, isn't to bring just a few requirements of the law, you know, and, and place them on the Gentiles, but rather it's an exhortation to to these new Gentile believers to consider those who were coming to faith, either, either were already, you know, either had responded to faith or, or Jews who were yet to respond to the faith and were still growing in their understanding of the gospel. Those who were still newborn babes in a sense. And so those who were Gentiles who are experiencing the grace of God were called to give grace to those who were coming to faith. There's this passage in 1 Corinthians. It's a little lengthy, but Paul explains this thought, and I believe this is what's going on here in our passage. So real quick, I'll read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So, so what about eating meat that has been offered to idols? We all know that an idol is not really a god and that there's only one god, However, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking idols as being real. So when they eat food that's been offered to an idol, they think of it as worship of real gods, and their weak consciences are violated. It's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat, and we don't gain anything if we do. But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. 
For if others see you with superior knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you're sinning against Christ. So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live. For I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. I know there's a lot there, and we don't have time this morning to completely break it down. But I believe, like Paul in this passage, James is encouraging these new Christians to live in such a way that they would not hinder anyone from coming to faith in Christ. And he highlights a few specific examples, you know, eating things polluted by idols, which was a big deal in that culture. Not so much in our culture today. Um, He highlights eating things strangled or blood, and then he mentions sexual immorality, which, which seems obvious, but to read it in the original Greek text, what seems to be referred to by James here is he's referring to the ceremonial aspects of the marriage relationship, which the details of which I'll leave for Pastor Gary to explain uh, when he returns. But he's saying, in effect, you know, be careful to, to, to not do those things which are going to cause other believers to stumble, to do something that's going to violate their conscience, something that they believe to be wrong. Again, if, if, if James and Paul were instructing us today, the, the list may look, it would look very, very different. Here, here's the point that we can take home with us. See, grace does not give us the freedom to live however we want to live. It rather equips us to live as we ought to live doesn't give us the liberty just to do whatever we want to do. In fact, you know, James later writes a, writes a letter and he talks about how faith without works is dead. And how, you know, when we respond to grace, there's responsibilities, there's things to do. Not that those works save us, but they're evidence of our salvation. And so here the, the believers are, are, are being implored uh, you know, to, to consider others, to give grace to those who are coming to faith in Christ. So again, God's grace doesn't give us the freedom to live as we please, but rather to live as we ought. And one of our ought-tos in life is to constantly considering, is constantly consider others, to strive to do all we can to assist them in their walk with God and never to become a hindrance. Just about done this morning. We're going to read uh, almost to the end of, of the chapter here. And as I'm reading, if, if the worship team would, would prepare to, to close us out, let's keep reading in verse 22. It says, Then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles the elders and the brethren to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, 
saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. After they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of God, the word of the Lord, with many others also. And we'll stop there for this morning, pick things up there in our, in our next message. One final fill in there is the grace which saved us is the grace which now sustains us. The grace which saved us is the grace which now sustains us. As I said earlier, you know, the, the receiving of God's grace on the day of our salvation, you know, it wasn't a, a one-time event. We need God's grace today and every day. We need to remember that God loves us and accepts us just the way that we are. So that's a message that we may often tell to others. God loves you, accepts you just as you are. Sometimes we fail, though, to instruct ourselves with that simple message. Do we recognize that we are the children of God? Do we understand that his love for us reaches levels far beyond our ability to grasp? Do we realize that he is with us at every moment of every day and every situation we face ready to, to pour out his grace upon us? Love that verse in 2 Corinthians 12. Final verse this morning. Paul speaking, he said, that, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Wherever you find yourself this morning, whatever situation you find yourself in, understand that God's grace is sufficient. And maybe some of you this morning or somebody watching online, you, you hear messages about grace and at the same time you hear the voice of legalism speaking, telling you, you're not good enough. You've done too much. God can't forgive you. And I'm reminded of a, of a story told of the, the, the late evangelist Charles Finney who lived in the 1800s and 
God did mighty work through his ministry. And during one of his you know, traveling uh, evangelistic crusades on the, on the East Coast, he, he came to a city and was holding uh, revival meetings. And upon entering the church one night, he was met by a man who, who asked him if he'd be willing to meet with him following the service that night. And Finney said, yes, of course, I would love to. And upon entering the church, the, the leaders of the local congregation there uh, approached him and said, who was, you know, or what did that man say to you, that man who approached you there at the steps of the church? What, what did he say? And, and Finney said, well, he simply asked if I would meet with him following the service. And, and the leader said, you can't go with that man. He said, that man is dangerous. That man is, is extremely wicked. He's a criminal. He should be in prison. You can't go with him after the service. And so Finney goes through the, the, the message and, and the service is over. And upon leaving, leaving the facility there, he's met by that man. And, you know, his heart began to beat a little faster. And, and the man asked him if he was willing to go with him. And Finney said, yes, I'll, okay, I'm going to go with you. Walked him a couple blocks down the street into a side alley, into a back door of, of, of a shady building. Said, take a seat. Charles Finney sat down and, and this man took a gun out of his pocket and laid it on the desk in front of him. And he said, I was at the, the meeting last night in the back of the church. You probably didn't see me, but I heard you say something. I just want to confirm that it's true. He said, you said that the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse a man from all sin. Is that true? Then he said, yes, I said that. It's what the word of God teaches. The man said, behind this wall right here, I, I have an illegal casino that I, that I own. I've, I've fixed all the machines. I've seen men lose everything they have walk out of this place and, and, and commit suicide. Are you saying God can, can forgive me? Then he said, the word of God declares, the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse a man from all sin. man said, well, I'm, I'm not done yet. I own several bars in this city and, and I've had wives come into my bar and plead with me desperately to stop serving their husband's alcohol and I've taken them and thrown them out on the street. And I've served their husband's alcohol anyways until they were out of money. Then I threw them out on the street. Are you saying that God can even forgive me? And he said, the word of God teaches the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse a man from all sin. He said, I'm not done yet. See this gun right here? I've hired men to take out others who opposed me. I've had men killed. Are you saying that God can forgive even me? Finney said, all I can say is what the word of God says. It says the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse a man from all sin. He said, I'm not done yet. I have a wife and I have a young daughter. I've hurt both of them. I've physically hurt both of them. I've been a terrible husband. I've been a terrible father. Can God forgive me that this Finney got up and grabbed him by the shirt said you're a terrible person and if it were up to me I would send you straight to hell but all I can say is what the word of God declares that the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse a man from all sin the man said all right you can go Finney left and the man 
started on his way home, and by, by now it was early in the morning, and the man got home, went to, up to his room, and bowed his knee, and asked God for the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse him from all sin. In the morning, his wife was preparing breakfast and sent her, their, their daughter up to, to tell the man that breakfast was ready. So she went upstairs, said, Daddy, Mommy said breakfast is ready. The man said, Sweetheart, please tell Mom I'm not going to be eating breakfast today. And the little girl, a bit surprised, ran downstairs and said, Mama, Daddy said he's not going to eat breakfast today, and he called me Sweetheart. She said, What? You must have misheard him. He always eats breakfast. Go upstairs, tell him again. Breakfast is ready. So she bounds up those stairs and says, Daddy, Mama said breakfast is ready. Man looked at his daughter and said, Come here, hon, honey. Set his daughter on his lap and said, I love you so much. Just poured out his love upon his daughter. And after a while, the wife is wondering, where is, where's my daughter? She goes up the stairs and glances into the room and sees her husband hugging on their daughter. Tears in his eyes. The man looks at his wife and says, Honey, last night and this morning I found out that the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse a man from all sin. God restored this man. He restored his family. After much restitution, this man became a leader in the church. The gospel is true. The blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse a man from all sin. Every one of us need God's grace. We need his grace to save us. We need his grace to sustain us. Don't let the voice of legalism condemn you this morning. You have access to the throne of grace because of what Jesus had done, not because you've been a good boy or good girl this week, but because you're his boy, you're his girl, you're his child, and his love for you is so great. So maybe you need to experience God's grace for the very first time. You can do that this morning. Maybe you need to be renewed and sustained in your grace. Call out to God. Come find a place of prayer. Ask somebody to pray for you. But don't leave here this morning without being reminded of, of, the, of the precious, pure truth of the gospel. That Jesus cleanses us, restores us, and sustains us. So if there's anybody from the prayer team this morning, if you would find your way up front here, we're going to just close in a song. Um, let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Jesus, we, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that we are not bound by the law anymore. We thank you for setting us free from all sin. We need your grace, God. We don't approach you because of the good things we have done, but because of who you are and all that you have done on our behalf. So we come to you, God, desperate for grace. Hear the cry of our hearts. Refill, uh, fill us, restore us, strengthen us. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.